Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here. Thanks for tuning in to the China History Podcast since 2010, bringing you all kinds of interesting topics from ancient, medieval, and modern Chinese history and from the Chinese diaspora, including this one I have for you today. As I've done for the Hakka, Hokkien, and Hainanese, I'm going to give you a nice overview of the Diochu people. I'm going to use the three words for Diochu interchangeably throughout this episode. Mandarin Chaozhou, Cantonese Chujiao, but don't quote me on those tones, and Diochu in the local dialect. Please at least give me an A for effort as far as my Diochu pronunciation goes. Diochu, Chaozhou, Chujiao, same Chinese characters for all. The three main things that Diochu people the world over share in common with each other are, of course, this Diochu dialect spoken by about 15 to 20 million or so people worldwide. And there's also this shared culture they have, which includes their famous cuisine. And lastly, either they live in Chaozhou or they're descended or partly descended from people who originally came from that region. The city of Chaozhou gets all the glory and top billing, thanks in part to the fame and well-earned repute of their excellent Chaozhou cuisine, but it would be more accurate to call the Diochus the Chaoshan people. Chaoshan is the term used to describe the geographic area of Chaozhou and neighboring Shantou. Chaozhou, Shantou, Chaoshan. Actually, there are three main cities that make up this rich Chaoshan coastal area. These are Chaozhou, Shantou, and the city of Jieyang, and these three places are then further broken down into districts. And then pretty much every Diochu on planet Earth can trace their ancestry to any one of these eight districts from the Chaoshan region. And those of you good-looking listeners of mine who read Chinese history books will have come across the word Swato more than once. Swato, S-W-A-T-O-W, it's the same as Shanto. What Diochu is to Chaozhou... That's what Swato is to Shantou. And just north of this Chaoshan area, bordering it in fact, is a place called Meizhou. And if you remember from that Hakka episode, Meizhou was sort of like the worldwide corporate headquarters of the Hakka people. But you see, the difference between the Hakkas of Meizhou and the Diochus of the Chaoshan region was that the Diochus came from that specific region, and their dialect was of that region, and it had similarities with other non-Diochu people of that part of China. The Hakkas of Meizhou, on the other hand, didn't come from Meizhou. That's just where they ended up after several waves of migration going back to the 4th century Jin Dynasty, and again in the 12th century with the Jurchen Jin Dynasty. Like the Hakkas, the Diochu people also came from the central plains of China, where China began, Henan, Shanxi, the Yellow River Valley, thereabouts. Meizhou is far from the coast, and the Hakkas usually lived and farmed in the mountains and valleys. The Chaoshan people, on the other hand, well, they had it made. No mountains for them. They were right on the coast, where the soil was fertile and the supply of seafood unlimited. And besides that... Shanto had evolved into a thriving trading port for the region, and three nice-sized rivers ran through Chaoshan, the Han, Huanggang, and Rong rivers. The Rong emptied out right into Shanto Harbor. It was a very 
efficiently watered world. It's believed by many scholars that the Dioju's and Hakas were both northern Han Chinese who had bolted from their original Hunan Shanxi homeland when things got too precarious up there. They first fled during the Wuhu invasions of the 4th and 5th centuries. The Wuhu, the Five Beards, or Barbarians. These warriors from the surrounding steppe laid waste to the Jin dynasty. The Jin had come out on top at the conclusion of the Three Kingdoms period, but their dynasty wasn't terribly long-lasting. And when they fell, things got so nasty for the northern Han Chinese people that those who could hit the road started heading in the opposite direction from whence these Wuhu came. These Wuhu, these big five who chased the future Diochus out of their Yellow River Valley homeland, were, of course, the longtime nemesis of the Han Chinese, going back to the Han Dynasty, the Xiongnu, as well as the Xianbei, Jie, Qiang, and Di people. The violence that came in the wake of these invading steppe people, caused a massive migration of northern Han Chinese to the safer regions of Jiangnan, southern China, south of the Yangtze River. And this wouldn't be the last time either that northern Han aristocrats and everyone else who had the means to flee abandoned the north and the central plains of China for the warmer and safer climes down in the south. But it mostly began during the early 4th century, the time of Constantine the Great in the West. During the 300 years between the fall of the Jin and the early Tang Dynasty in the 7th century, so many northern Han Chinese opted to vacate the premises. The Hakas were one group, and so were the Diochus. The Diochu people kept running until they ended up in what is today southern Fujian, the Quanzhou Putian area mostly. And it was between the Tang and the Yuan dynasties, maybe in search of greener pastures, that these Diochu people, originally from the China heartland, now mostly in southernmost Fujian province, began to make their way further down the coast to what was geographically easternmost Guangdong province. One interesting thing about the Diochu people, these people of the Chaoshan region of Guangdong, their language is not Cantonese, not even a dialect of Cantonese. On a map, Chaozhou ended up in Guangdong province, but linguistically speaking, these Chaozhou or Diochu people have more in common with the people of southern Fujian. It's where they came from, though, not ontologically speaking. That's why the Diochu people speak a dialect of the southern Min variety and not a dialect of Cantonese. Six tones in Chaozhou Hua two more than in Mandarin and two less than in Cantonese. This point has been argued on my YouTube channel, but you get the main idea. I learned this back in the 90s when I was in the ceramics business. I worked with this factory in Chaozhou who made these traditional Chinese fish bowls and vases that we sold to Kmart in the U.S. Even though it was only a five-hour drive by car from Guangzhou, no one at this Chaozhou factory spoke Cantonese. My Hong Kong Chinese colleagues... Spoke to them in Mandarin. Worldwide, there are roughly 25 million or so Diochu people. That's like the population of Australia. About half live in the Chaozhou, Shantou, Jieyang area, and the rest are spread out all over the world, but mostly in the greater China region. The highest concentration of Diochu people outside China are in Thailand, 
Thailand is home to the largest overseas Chinese community in the world. And of all the ethnic Chinese in the land of smiles, 56% are Diochu. And the balance, 44% are made up of the usual suspects, Hokkien, Hakka, Hainanese, and Cantonese. In Singapore, the Hokkien slightly outnumber the Diochus to take the top spot there. Diochu communities are all over Southeast Asia. Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Philippines, everywhere. Not every Diochu on the planet speaks the dialect. There's maybe... 10 million speakers inside the Chaoshan region, and perhaps another 3 million or so outside. I'm guessing less and less of the younger generation are learning the dialect, and the attrition rate has got to be pretty alarming in the 21st century. The Diochu people aren't the only ones in the world whose language is being spoken less and less by the new generations. One other thing, unlike the Hakkas, who did not go in for the whole foot-binding thing, the Diochus did partake of this custom. The two peoples were similar in many ways, but they parted ways on that score. In the towns and villages where Hakka and Diochu borders meet, in Chaozhou and Jieyang, it was common for the folk out there to be familiar with each other's dialect, even though the two had nothing in common linguistically. The history of this coastal region of Fujian and Guangdong predates the arrival of the Diochus. As far as I could tell, the Chaoshan region got written into the history books during the time of the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang. Perhaps you recall from other China History podcast episodes on the History of Hong Kong Part 1 and the Rise and Fall of the Qin Part 2. I mentioned this before. Way down in the south was the Nanhai Commandery. Commanderies, or Jin, went back to the Zhou Dynasty, These were forts that kept an eye on all the frontier lands in between the counties. When the Qin emperor unified the country, he initially divided the new nation up into 36 of these commanderies. And this Chaoshan region, not called that yet, by the way, was a small, unimportant part of the Nanhai commandery. Nanhai, South Sea, those two characters for 2,000 years will come to define that whole region down there. And the one in charge of that Nanhai commandery was a major guy in Guangdong history, Zhao Tuo. You perhaps recall from the China-Vietnam relations and the history of Guangzhou series, he was the one who rose up against the Qin government after Qin Shi Huang died and everything for his dynasty began to unravel. Zhao Tuo went on to form the Nanyue Kingdom, all discussed before. The Nanyue Kingdom ran for 93 years, but of course fell once the Han Emperor Wu arrived on the scene. During the time in between the Eastern Han and the unification under the Sui, the people living down there got shifted around from one jurisdiction to another until the year 590. And during the Eastern Jin, 266 to 420, the area where Chaozhou is today was moved to the Dongguan Commandery and renamed Haiyang. Towards the end of the Eastern Jin, this Jin, or Commandery, had a name change once more, becoming the Yi'an Commandery. Then shortly thereafter, as I said, in 590, following the founding of the Sui, the Yi'an Commandery was renamed to Chao Prefecture. Back then, these prefectures were called a Zhou 
so Chao Prefecture was written Chaozhou. That's where that all came from. Throughout most of Chinese imperial history, the place was referred to as the Haiyang District. And after the fall of the Qing, the ROC government renamed it Chao'an County. So this homeland of the Diuchu people has been on the map for more than 2,200 years. Like almost every place in China, what they used to call it a thousand years ago and what they call it today has some variance. But it's only been called Chaozhou for maybe 1,700 of those years. And that's based on recorded history. But archaeologists have dug plenty of Neolithic tools and implements out of the ground that proves human beings populated that region for something like 8,000 years. You know, to be perfectly honest, the Chaoshan region, in the context of Chinese history, it isn't really a famous or important place, relatively speaking. Chaozhou is not Beijing or Shanghai or Wuhan, Kaifeng, Guangzhou or Hangzhou, places that are coated thick with all kinds of Chinese history. Chaozhou's claim to fame ended up being the achievements of its native sons and daughters who left the homeland and went on to globalize the Chaozhou people. By fanning out across the world, they also spread awareness about the culture and the whole big, shiny Diuchu brand. I'll circle back later and we'll look at some of the Wenhua, the culture that Chaozhou is famous for. I already mentioned ceramics. They're famous for a whole lot more. During the Qing Dynasty, when times got tough, beginning around the second half of the Qianlong Emperor's overly long reign, the Diuchu people were right at the front of the line with millions of other Chinese, mostly men at the beginning, who participated in this great 19th century diaspora. Most all of these Chinese came from a beltway that stretched from Hainan Island in the west to all points surrounding the Pearl River Delta, eastward up the coast of Guangdong and into Fujian province. The Diuchus were part of that whole migration of Chinese who reluctantly left their homeland in the 1800s to try their luck elsewhere on six continents. And just like the Hakas, the Hokkien, Cantonese, and all these other coastal dwellers, the men from Chaozhou, Shantou, and Jieyang, these Chaoshanren, they too went out and built beachheads in all the up-and-coming commercial centers in Asia and the West. And it didn't take long for the Diochus to establish a reputation for being unusually shrewd in business. Besides famine, war, natural disasters, and political instability, there were two main reasons for leaving the comforts of home. One was related to kinship, and the other was contractual. In the former, it was the old case of one brave soul blazing the trail first, getting set up in a new land, and then, after establishing himself, he called for more family members to help in his new enterprise, and he served as the anchor to offer stability and support for those of his kin who followed. In these so-called credit ticket migrations, this involved migrants who were recruited from their hometowns to work wherever there was a labor shortage. These kinds of migrants didn't have any kin where they were going. These folk, which of course included many Diochus, signed contracts and went off to toil in any number of lines of work that 
mostly involved heavy lifting or a lot of bending and squatting. During the 1850s to the 1870s, this was especially true. Trade was booming and Chinatowns were popping up in more places than just Southeast Asia. The Taiping Rebellion and the general degradation of late Qing society offered plenty of impetus for Dioju's and others to consider these overseas options. Although nowhere near as plentiful as the Hoysanese, in the 1850s and 60s, the Diochus joined their Cantonese cousins in the gold mines and in laying down railroad tracks in the United States. One good example of an early trailblazing Diochu who made good would be Shuyo Jin. I'm not sure I can pronounce his name the same way they do in Singapore, but he was known in the local dialect as Xiaoyu Jin. His surname, She, is the one that in Mandarin rhymes with snake, and I always get it mixed up with the character for the surname Yu. The She surname is one of the more special ones in the world of the Diochus. Those from this She clan trace their arrival in Chaozhou to an ancient descendant that went all the way back to the Liu Song dynasty, 420 to 479. That was the first of the northern and southern dynasties, the Nanbei Chao. The Liu Song was one of the southern ones, so She Yuqin's clan had this nice lineage. In every overseas Chinese community, in every city and town, there were always those like She Yuqin who got there first, took their lumps with the locals, learned the language, established a foothold, and then thrived. And from these early pioneers arose leaders for each and every sub-community. Shi Yuqin, after building his fortune in the 1830s, became the community leader for the Diochus in Singapore. When the Sultan of Johor signed the treaty with Sir Stamford Raffles in February of 1819, that got the whole Singapore thing up and running. Shi Yuqin arrived in Singapore in 1823, right at the beginning. It's nothing like getting in on the ground floor. After trying his hand at trading, he went into the Gambier business. Yeah, I didn't know what that was either. Gambier is a plant extract that was mostly used as a brown-colored tanning agent in the leather industry. It was also a Chinese medicine. It was big business in the mid-19th century, and the Saudi Arabia of Gambier was Malaysia and Indonesia as well. So he got into the business during the boom years, and they lasted a long time, and it seeded a great fortune. And Shuyo Jin and his descendants lived in this magnificent house in Singapore. A lot of Diochus got into this Gambier industry. Two decades after Shuyo Jin arrived in Singapore, the Diochu community had grown to almost 20,000. By the time of the 1881 census, there were 22,644, which, thanks to the wave of Hokkien migration from Malacca, put the Diochus in second place behind the Hokkien population. Diochu and Hokkien together comprised about half the total Singapore Chinese population. The word must have got out about the rich pickings to be had over in the Lion City because Hokkien people came in waves during the 1820s from all over Southeast Asia and southern Fujian. The Hakas and Diochus always used Shanto as their launching point for Southeast Asia. The Hokkien mostly sailed out of Xiamen, one of the new treaty ports that got pried open in the 1840s. 
Shi Yujin, together with other Diochus from various clans, formed what became known as the Nian Gongsi, or in Mandarin, the Yian Gongsi. As you recall, Yian was one of the ancient names of Chaozhou back in the 6th century. And this association became the earliest collective voice of the Diochu community in Singapore. And their mission was to be the go-to local organization for anything related to Diochu rights, customs, and religious beliefs. And like any other Chinese clan association, they had to look after all Diochus in need and act as a support group. It was even left to them to play a hand in promoting education within the community of Diochus in Singapore. The Nian Gongsi is still around today, though their influence over the community became quite diminished around the 1930s. The Singapore Eight Districts Association is the big one, the Chaozhou Ba Yi Hui Guan. Eight districts, again, because all Diochu, Chiuzhou, Chaozhou people came from one of the eight districts of the Chaoshan region. Shi Yujin, like other prominent and successful Chinese, often acted as a go-between whenever the British had to interface with the Chinese community on some important issue. For example, in 1854, when the Diochus and Hokkien of Singapore were killing each other over an economic dispute, Shi Yujin was called in by the British to make a deal with Hokkien leaders to end the bloodletting. So he was a major guy in Singapore history and Typical in some ways of the hometown hero who leaves Chaozhou, creates a fortune in business overseas, and gives back to the place from whence he came, bringing glory to his people in the process. Shi Yujin was one of the early Diochu greats. His grave was later lost to history, but was rediscovered in November 2012 on Grave Hill near the Caldecott subway station. There were many other Chaozhou pioneers of Singapore history. Shi Yujin was just one. Chaozhou later became one of the many treaty ports opened in 1858 around the time of the Second Opium War. Actually, whenever you refer to the port, geographically speaking, you're talking about Shantou, the area of this region that had the best location for port facilities. Like others who made their home along the South China coast, they knew how to eat well. Guangdong, was always a rich province. The same could be said for Fujian. Chiuzhou cuisine is one of the greats of Chinese regional cuisines, Chaoshan Cai. It's not Fujianese nor Cantonese, but the Chaozhounese drew inspiration from both of these styles of cooking. Seafood and vegetables are what they're most famous for. Some might complain that Chiuzhou food is slightly bland, but with Chiuzhou food, there's no need to bury the natural flavor with peppers and spices and pungent sauces and fragrances. My very first boss after I moved out to Hong Kong was Mr. Frank Yang. He and his family, his wife, they were all Chow Chow people. So this was the very first culture I got to see and take part in once I moved out there. All company functions, weddings, spring festival banquets were always held at one of a couple Chiu restaurants in Hong Kong. And whenever we wined and dined out-of-towners, you could bet it was always at one of the best possible Chiu seafood palaces in Hong Kong. Notable dishes are rogu cha, a kind of meat soup. I don't think I ever had two that tasted the same. The Chaozhou braised goose is another mainstay. There's a goose called lu shui e that 
always seems to be on the table for starters. Chiu Chow food is flooded with so many crab and fish dishes. A true signature dish is a kind of dong xie, a crab in a shell, of course, that's eaten cold. Oysters are also a major ingredient. If you don't like seafood, eh, Chiu Chow cuisine is not for you. Being on the coast and all, and the South China Sea being a haven for sharks, shark fin soup was also a big Chiu Chow food item. Share prices in shark fin soup have tanked over the years thanks to Yao Ming and Wild Aid, who spoke out about the realities of the shark fin harvesting process. Sales are down more than 50%. But when it was still okay to order it, the chefs of Chiu Chow took the art of preparing and serving shark fins to great heights. There's always these great sauces that pair with various Chujiao foods, and this cuisine is one of the only Chinese cuisines I ever experienced that also uses fish sauce, yu lu in Mandarin, nook mum in Vietnamese, a very particular Southeast Asian kind of flavor. If you ask for it in a Chujiao place, they'll have it. Chao Zhou's entry to the honor roll of great Chinese sauces is called Sha Cha Sauce. It's real thick, made from soybean oil, shallots, dried fish, dried shrimp, and a nice kick of chili and garlic. Sha Cha. This is the same as Sauté Sauce that maybe some of you might know of. Sauté. You can get instant noodles with this Sha Cha flavor. That's another taste of Chao Zhou. Chao Zhou Guo Tiao is the best-known noodle dish. That is as signature a Chiu Chow dish as it comes. In Vietnam, they call it Hu Tiu. It's a kind of rice or egg noodle soup filled with all kinds of choices of meats, seafood, and other ingredients beloved by so many. It's not a one-size-fits-all dish, and there's all kinds of variations, and different people take it different ways, but that's a big one. Every major regional cuisine in China has their own spin on soups, congees, fish cakes, rice flour cakes, egg dishes, braised dishes, hot pots, desserts, noodles, and dumplings. Chaozhou food has their version of all that, too. Now, I'm not going to say it's my favorite, but for most of my Chinese friends, even those not of the Diochu persuasion, they say this style of eating is always high on their list, and it's considered fine dining. A dinner out for four at a nice sparkly chujiao joint with all the trimmings is not a cheap date. The steamed fish alone could set you back over $100. If you have access to chujiao food where you live and never tried it before, go check it out. If you want to learn how to cook chaozhou cai, there are so many teochu cookbooks available and videos galore on YouTube and other video streaming platforms. Chujiao culture... There's a lot of things because of their location and the way things turned out. Chiu Chow Cuisine is their global ambassador. The glittery Chow Chow Seafood Emporiums are great, and so are the small dives found in Chinatowns the world over. And fortunately for yours truly, they're all over the San Gabriel Valley, Little Saigon, and L.A. Chinatown. There's always one or two Chow Chow-owned shops that carries all the greatest hits of Chaozhou-style breakfasts and lunches. And last year, over on Valley and Garfield in Alhambra, the Ipo Kopitiam opened, and they had a few nice Diochu delicacies there as well. Another embellishment to Chaozhou cuisine and the culture in general is the Gongfu Cha. 
they serve this tea in these small Pinming Bay, these tiny tea sipping cups. If you remember that nugget from the uh, history of tea series, that tradition is pure Chucho. No matter if you're at some Chucho restaurant or at someone's home, out will come a plate of Gong Fu tea when you arrive and before you leave. Gong Fu Cha was a tea prepared in a very precise, deliberate, and careful manner. That's why it's called Gong Fu Cha. Gong Fu means effort or to try hard. You had to use a little effort to make this kind of tea. There's a whole process. It's not like taking a tea bag and letting it steep in a teapot for a few minutes. So when you serve someone this tea, this Gong Fu Cha, no matter at a restaurant or at some kind of social gathering, when you drink it, you could pause and reflect on the time and effort it took for your host to prepare this kind of tea for you. It implies humility, respect, and welcoming generosity. In the Diochu Chaozhou style, as soon as you sit down at your seat, someone will come out and welcome you with a plate of small teacups, each one filled with strong Tieguanyin Iron Buddha tea, a type of oolong. You take it all in with one sip. That's all you can get in one cup. But it's rich and certainly welcoming. The same ritual is repeated at the end of the meal as well. You get your Dioju send off also with your tiny cup of Gong Fu tea. It's a great little custom, and eh, I'm a sucker for drinking tea from tiny, delicate porcelain cups. One other tea that's particularly associated with the Chaoshan region is called Dan Song Cha. If you can get your hands on authentic Dan Song tea, you're lucky. It's another kind of oolong with a distinctive flavor of that region. I covered that one in the uh, History of Tea series in Part 20. What else defines Dioju culture besides their language, their distinctive cuisine, and beautiful tea culture? Well, just like with their own style of Chinese food that takes regular dishes and turns them uniquely into a chaocho style, the same could be said of opera, dance, music, embroidery, wood carving, and as I said before, in the ceramic arts, every pocket of China has their take on all these signature arts of Chinese culture. Chaozhou opera, Chaozhou, I'm not sure how much the uh, younger generation embraces this, but it's been popular for a thousand years. It borrows heavily from Song Dynasty Nanxi, or Southern Drama, which originally came from around Wenzhou, as well as Kun Chu or Kun Opera. Kun Chu was popular in the Ming and Qing, and many of the older generation, the more traditional ones at least, still love it. Chinese opera, Peking, Sichuan, Cantonese, Chu Chao, it's a whole world. There's so much to it. I must admit, although I love watching it, I can't say I'm familiar with what's going on. The Chu Chao people came up with their version and Although it isn't as popular and recognizable as their great food and tea culture, it's one more thing about Chaozhou culture that they call their own. The top Chaozhou names, Tan and Lim, those are the two big ones. That's Chen and Lin in Mandarin. Ng, Go, and Te round off the top five. Those are better known in Mandarin as Huang, Wu, and Zheng. The number six was Li. And speaking of Li... Perhaps the most famous Chaozhou Ren of them all has that surname. I featured this person in an episode from way back in 2010 when I first launched the China History Podcast. 
The Chuchao people have worldwide bragging rights to one of the richest tycoons in Asia, Sir Li Ka Sheng, worth $38 billion. For as long as I can remember, he was always the number one or two richest person in Asia. But now, with billionaires being a dime a dozen in China, Sir K.S. Lee doesn't even crack the top ten. Li Ka Sheng, however, comes from Chaozhou. When times got tough, he left Chaozhou and came to Hong Kong in the 1940s. Just like Shi Youjin, who got into the Gambier business in Singapore just as the industry was taking off, Li Ka Sheng got into the plastics business right at the beginning and built a fortune with shareholdings and a number of diversified companies around the world. And none of them have anything to do with plastic flowers. His Li Ka Sheng Foundation is a major player in the world of philanthropy, and his hometown has been one of the prime beneficiaries of his generosity. Sir K.S. Lee is an extreme case of someone who left his hometown and never forgot where he came from. It was a given for any Chinese who left China for points all over the world to give back to their hometown once they made good. The success that Sir Li Ka Sheng achieved allowed him to donate money to build Shantou University, the Cheonggong Graduate School of Business, and he's given to universities and institutions the world over. So Li Ka Sheng, now pushing 95 years old, is always pointed to as the ultimate model son of Chao Zhou, who, like others before him, brought glory and pride to his hometown by leaving it. He's not the only Diochu who made good. Chao Zhou's other famous Chao Zhou knees are Joseph Lao of Chinese Estates Holdings, Lin Poryan, Lin Baixin of the Lai Sun Group, Albert Yang, Yang Shoucheng of the Emperor Group, and Vincent Lo, Luo Kangrei of Sino Land, and of course my old boss, Mr. Frank Yang, and Uncle A.C. Tan. There are of course many others, and all of them have helped to stoke the reputation Chao Zhou people have earned as industrious, hardworking, and very strong in business. In the rice business, especially in Thailand, ethnic Chaocho people dominate and have dominated for as long as anyone can remember. The CP group? Yeah, that guy too. Thailand's richest man, Danin Cheravanant, a.k.a. Xiegua Min. He came from Chaocho people too, who left China in the 1920s. As soon as they arrived in Bangkok... They went straight into the agribusiness industry, never left it. The man who brought us QQ and Wei Xin, WeChat, Pony Ma, Ma Huai Tang, he too is a card-carrying member of the Chaocho people. There are also a lot of Vietnamese Hua Q who also call Chaocho their ancestral home. And this includes Mr. David Tran. He's a Vietnamese Chu Chao. I covered him in an earlier episode. He's the founder of Hui Feng Foods, maker of the famous Sriracha chili sauce, beloved by Vietnamese and millions and millions of others the world over, and lately imitated by Fortune 500 companies and small batch Sriracha makers the world over. Mr. David Tran, Vietnamese Chu Chao. Those are just the best known that I could name off the top of my head. So, that's the skinny on the Diochu people, a.k.a. the Chuchao people, a.k.a. the Chaozhou people, a.k.a. the Gaginang, a term that two different Chaozhounese have told me is written as Zijiren or Jiajinong. Historically, 
they perhaps haven't had many heroes or important figures who topped the charts like other parts of China had. They were great for what they did when hard times and chaos forced them to consider pulling up stakes and heading overseas and establishing or enhancing Diochu communities the world over. Wherever they went, they became what later immigrants aspired to be. Not every Chaochonese who left Chaoshan became a Li Ka-shing or a Joseph Lao, but all over the world there are boundless Diochu success stories in business, engineering, medicine, the sciences, politics, and academia all over the world. So, that's going to be it for this time. Just a little overview of Chaozhou, the people, and the culture. If you haven't heard them yet, I welcome you to go listen to past CHP episodes covering the Hokkien, Hakas, Hoisan, Hainan, and a six-part series on the history of Guangzhou, Huan Ying Ting. Okay, until the next time, this is Laszlo Montgomery once again signing off from fantastic L.A. and the sometimes wacky state of California. Do consider joining me next time, won't you, for another satisfying episode of the China History Podcast.